morning, as has already been expressed, it's good to see you here, and uh, it's good to have the opportunity to stand up and talk to you today, and I hope the time we spend here together this morning will be uh, beneficial, and especially today, instructive for all of us. We're beginning a new mini-series of lessons today that are, that are topical. We might think of them really as sort of meditations on the person and work of Jesus Christ. But I want us to do something a little bit different this morning and consider the historical evidence for the man, Jesus. That's probably not something that we're used to thinking about. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you take this for granted. Well, of course, Jesus existed. We know that. And even if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I imagine that you wouldn't be here if you didn't believe that, yes, there was at least a man who lived in first century Palestine named Jesus of Nazareth. But you see, there are actually a handful of people in this world who deny that a figure named Jesus ever really lived. They argue that Jesus was a myth. He was a purely celestial cosmic, mythological figure who had followers who worshipped him as a god. And then at some point in the first century, they historicized him. That is, they started treating him as if he really lived then, but he never did. It's important that you be aware of this because, believe it or not, you might encounter this in the real world. Maybe some of you have already. The internet is a wonderful tool but the downside is that it's allowed every crackpot theory to have a platform. And so you can go and find a society that advocates that the earth is flat. You can look up their literature and they say that it's flat like a pizza, like a disc. And you know the UN map, the North Pole at the center and Antarctica around the edges? That's how it is. That's what keeps the water from falling off, don't you know? There are people out there who advocate that all world governments are controlled by a lizard-like alien race called the reptilians and their half-breed offspring with humans. And then there are Jesus mythicists. And every one of those groups has precisely the same amount of credibility as far as scholars are concerned. It's important that you realize that. It doesn't matter the discipline we're talking about, ancient historians, archaeologists, anthropologists, theologians, you name it, 99.99% of them, even the most skeptical atheist among them, all admit that there was once a man who lived a first century Jew named Jesus. To argue otherwise is the equivalent of those fellows on the History Channel who try to tell you that the pyramids were built by aliens. The problem comes when these fringe views are given credibility by mainstream publications. And what I have here is an article published in the Washington Post, December 18, 2014, entitled, Did Historical Jesus Really Exist? The Evidence Just Doesn't Add Up. They've since tweeted about that at least twice, including, as you see, last year, on Christmas Day. I don't know what exactly they're trying to do with that. 
uh, the more cynical among us might speculate. But at any rate, the author, Raphael Letaster, begins his article this way. Did a man called Jesus of Nazareth walk the earth? Discussions over whether the figure known as the historical Jesus actually existed primarily reflect disagreements among atheists. And then he says believers shouldn't get involved. But you see, that's not true. There is no disagreement, even among atheists. But statements like this create false impressions with people that there is some sort of debate out there. And so it's good for us to be aware of this issue. You might otherwise run into it yourself. You might pick up the Washington Post or some other publication, never having been exposed to this before, and you might be shaken if you've never thought about this. We want to lay a firm foundation for your faith this morning. Or you might have a friend or a relative who starts to ask you questions about this because as I've seen these ideas start to gain traction on the internet, I've increasingly seen them promulgated by people out in the world as if there really is some live debate going on here. As Christians, we believe that Jesus is precisely who the scriptures say he is. He is the incarnate Son of God. He took on human form. He lived. He died for us. But on the third day, God raised him from the dead and elevated him to his right hand, and now he's reigning there as Lord of all of the earth. And one day he's going to judge the living and the dead. But I want us to try to put that aside to the best of our ability this morning for just a few minutes. And let's ask a little bit different question. What historical evidence is there for the existence of a man named Jesus? Who is this man? The absolute best sources for the life of Jesus are the four gospel accounts. I imagine all of us here would agree with that. But men like Letaster in this article and others like him dismiss the gospel accounts as untrustworthy sources. He says here that the authors of the gospel are biased, and then he says the authors of the gospels fail to name themselves, describe their qualifications, or show any criticism with their foundational sources. Now that's typical. The Gospels are not by eyewitnesses. They're late documents. Uh, they're anonymous. They're biased. There are a number of problems with making assertions like that. For one thing, it's an open question whether or not the Gospel accounts are by eyewitnesses. There are a number of people who are not even conservative Christians who say that they are. I have a book in my office entitled Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by a fellow named Richard Bauckham who's not at all conservative. And of course, we know that the Gospels themselves claim to be by eyewitnesses in some cases. John's Gospel does. He says at the end of his account that this is the disciple who was there. We know that his testimony is true. It's the same thing that was read a few moments ago in 1 John chapter 1. The things that we've seen with our own eyes, the things that we've touched with our own hands. John says, I was there. As far as them being anonymous, well, they're only anonymous in the sense that every ancient work is anonymous. 
It's not as if you could uh, go down to the Library of Congress and pull the card catalog and see who published it. And it's not as if the author names himself in the text, and yet from the earliest date that we have titles on these, every one of them is according to Mark, according to Matthew, etc. As far as the charge that these are later documents, that they're not contemporaneous with Jesus, that charge undermines basically everything that we know about ancient history. Do you realize, for example, this is not true of just this man, but to take an example of one of Jesus' contemporaries, the Emperor Tiberius. Did you know that basically all we know about the Emperor Tiberius comes from two sources, Suetonius and Tacitus, who lived 80 years after Tiberius died? And yet you'd be hard-pressed to go and find an article questioning the existence of the historical Tiberius. That's because we all know that this is not how ancient history works. And in fact, we know this in modern biography too. A source doesn't have to be written during the lifetime of a person to be valuable. I mean, think about uh, biography written of a figure who lives today. Would you think that a biography of a president, for example, would be more relevant if it's written during his administration or if it's written with 20 or 30 or 50 years of hindsight to see how things play out? We know logically how that works even in our own world. And certainly, the disciples, thick and stupid and not understanding who Jesus was during his life, that's the way they're described in the Gospels, they could write about him much better with the advantage of hindsight. Uh, finally, the fact that he says that uh, the earliest sources all stem from Christian authors eager to promote Christianity, the idea that they're biased, is self-defeating. I have news for you. All historians are biased. Every historian makes a decision to write about something that he or she thinks is important. There's bias right there. They're choosing the subject. And then because they can't possibly write about everything that happened about that event, they're choosing material. They're selecting. There's bias, what to put in, what to keep out. They're bringing their particular perspective, their point of view to this in the way that they tell the story. You can't ignore bias in history because it's told by people, and people are biased. And in fact, that sort of claim undermines this article in the first place. After all, he's trying to convince you of something, isn't he? That a historical Jesus never existed. Should we throw out his article because he's biased? This is true of ancient and modern historians alike. And the point I want to make to you is there is no good reason to discount the Gospels as sources. You can trust them. Now, that's not really our purpose today. We could talk a lot more about that. But in the time we have left, I want to just briefly introduce you to some accounts outside the Bible that tell us about the history of Jesus. Let's note, first of all, the classical sources. And there are three classical sources for the historicity of Jesus. Now, all of these come from the second century. That's said to be problematic by some because we're several decades here after Jesus' life. But I want to ask you this. If you were trying to find out about Jesus, where would you expect to find writings about him? Among his followers, sure, we've already talked about that. 
But during those early decades, who would you expect to be writing about Jesus among the Romans? You see, the Romans aren't going to be writing about every Messiah that comes along. You couldn't throw a rock in Jesus' day in Judea without hitting somebody who claimed to be the Messiah. Every two-bit would-be rebel who came along and gathered a little ragtag band of followers around himself claimed to be the Messiah, and people were propping him up as that. They didn't write about every one of those guys. Furthermore, Judea was a backwater. It's not a place that the Romans paid that much attention to, so only if something really important happened did they write about it. In other words, we wouldn't expect Romans to write about Jesus unless his people started to come to their attention the way that we find in the book of Acts, for example. There we see that they start to come to Roman notice when there's problems in Roman cities. There's tension there, butting heads with the Jews, and the Romans have to try to sort everything out. And so we find writings about Jesus essentially in the police beat. That's where we find the earliest accounts of him. And the first one is from Pliny the Younger. If we could fast forward a little bit on our uh, slides here, because we've run a little bit behind. But the first one is from Pliny the Younger, who was the Roman governor of Bithynia in the early 2nd century. Pliny was the absolute worst sort of bureaucrat. He was one of these guys who could never make a decision by himself. He was always writing to the Emperor Trajan for some sort of guidance. And on one occasion, he's encountering some Christians. And he knows that Christians are, are bad. They're doing something against the law. But he's never been at a trial. He doesn't know uh, precisely what the nature of the charges against them are. And so he says, telling Trajan about the process of the way that he tried them. And I have an excerpt of this on a, on a slide. But I'll read it at greater length. Those who denied that they were had been Christians and called upon the gods after me, and with incense and wine made obeisance to your statue, which I had ordered to be brought in together with images of the gods for this very purpose. And who moreover cursed Christ, those who are truly Christian cannot, it is said, be forced to do these things, I ordered to be acquitted. Others who were named by an informer stated that they were Christians and then denied it. All these as well worshipped your statue and the images of the gods and blasphemed Christ. They maintained, however, that all that their guilt or error involved was that they were accustomed to assemble at dawn on a fixed day, to sing a hymn antiphonally to Christ as God, and to bind themselves by an oath not for the commission of some crime, but to avoid acts of theft, brigandage, and adultery, not to break their word, and not to withhold money deposited with them when asked for. There's a lot we could say about this uh, that has bearing on early Christianity, but all I want you to note for our purposes is that he mentions the name Christ three times here. And in particular, where he says that they sang a hymn to Christ as to a God, that indicates he's shocked because this was a man. And here they are singing to him as if he was a God. So what we see from Pliny is the knowledge that there was a man called Christ. Two prominent Roman historians also mention Christ. The first one is Suetonius. Suetonius is best known for his work, The Twelve Caesars, which gives biographies of all the Roman emperors from Julius Caesar down to Domitian. 
In his uh, life of the Emperor Claudius, there's a particularly interesting note. He says, Because the Jews at Rome caused continuous disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he expelled them from the city. Now, I wish you could see it up here. The name is Crestus, C-H-R-E-S-T-U-S. Crestus was a common name, especially for a slave. Christus was not. So it's possible that this Christus is some uh, agitator who's otherwise unknown to history, sure. But what's more likely here is that Suetonius has confused this unfamiliar name Christus with Crestus, which is much more common. And the language here indicates that Suetonius is a little bit confused. <laughs> He thought this was a man who was living there in Rome in the 50s who was stirring this up. It seems he mistook him for the ringleader of this event. Probably he had some sort of a official account of what took place here, but it also shows us that his report didn't come from Christians because he gets the name wrong and because he refers to him basically as a rabble-rouser. That's important because it shows we have an independent source here for his knowledge, not from Christians. So there was confusion in Suetonius' day about just who this was, and Suetonius was actually a bad historian. He's like the national inquirer of ancient Rome. He's always writing gossip about the emperors. But it does show us he believed him to be an actual man. The third and the best classical source we have is also from the greatest Roman historian, Tacitus. In his Annals, Tacitus gives us an account of the great Roman fire of the year 64. Tacitus blamed that on Nero. And then he says that to destroy this rumor, Nero supplied his perpetrators and executed with elaborate punishments people popularly called Christians, hated for their perversions. The name's source was one Christus, executed by the governor Pontius Pilatus when Tiberius held power. The pernicious creed suppressed at the time was bursting forth again, not only in Judea, where this evil originated, but even in Rome, into which from all directions everything appalling and shameful flows and foregathers. Now, Tacitus is a great historian. He's not like Suetonius. He's prized even by modern historians for his accuracy and his detail. And so I want you to notice what we have here. The proper name, Christus. The location in Judea the time period and the principles involved. It was during Tiberius' reign, Pontius Pilate. All of this is in accordance with what we see in the Gospels. But on the other hand, his overall perspective on Christians is pretty negative, isn't it? He calls this a pernicious creed, this hated superstition. Where did he get this information? It wasn't from Christians. They wouldn't talk about themselves this way. Tacitus was a Roman government official. It's possible he had access to archives. We know that he did for some things. Maybe he even had a report from Pilate himself. I don't know. But the point is, he had no doubt about the existence of this fellow Christus. He corroborates broadly the New Testament. We could talk more about some of these classical sources, but I want to move on briefly. The time we have left is some Jewish sources. And the first two both come from the Jewish historian Josephus. Josephus was a Pharisee who became a general in the Jewish rebellion of the 60s. 
But pretty soon he saw that things weren't going to go well. And so he defected. And Josephus was, well, he was a, he was a self-promoter, if nothing else. He was someone who knew how to get ahead in life. And so he not only defected, he went to the Roman general Vespasian and he pointed to their scriptures. He said, hey, this guy that's supposed to come, the Messiah, you're it. Roman generals like that sort of flattery. And so when Vespasian became emperor, Josephus got to go with him and he was set up there under his patronage for the rest of his life and he wrote several books. The most important for us is a book called Jewish Antiquities, which is the history of the Jewish people from creation all the way down to the Jewish rebellion. Two passages in this book mention Jesus. The first one you see here is in connection with the death of Jesus' brother, James. Uh, the high priest Ananus didn't like James, and he took advantage of a power vacuum. The Roman governor Festus was dead to try to make a move against him before his replacement arrived. And he says there that he assembled the Sanhedrin of judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, whose name was James, and some others. And when he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. That passage is pretty sparse in its identification. That means it's unlikely that Christians have edited this in any way. And that's important because the only way that we have Josephus today is because Christian monks and scribes preserved his writings down through the Middle Ages. If they were writing about Jesus and James, they likely would have included more laudatory terms here, really built them up. So sometimes people will argue that these passages aren't authentic, but almost all scholars accept this. Uh, Jesus and James were both very common names in first century Palestine, and he's just identifying them. James, the brother of Jesus, you know, the Jesus who was called Christ. The more controversial, and the notice from Josephus at greater length, is uh, the most thorough reference to Jesus in all of extra-biblical literature. And I've got the whole thing here uh, on your slide, and so it's a little bit of an overload of words. I apologize for that. Normally I don't like it, but I want you to see all of this. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those who loved him at the first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and ten thousand other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians, so named from him, are not extinct at this day. Now, there's a, a great deal of controversy around this passage, because obviously there's a lot here that doesn't fit with Josephus' worldview, but it fits with the Christian perspective. He calls him the Christ. He says, if it be lawful to call him a man, which implies that he's more than a man. Uh, he says, for he appeared here and talks about the resurrection. But there's also a lot here that clearly didn't come from a Christian. He calls him a wise man. That's not a way that Christians ever referred to Jesus that we know of, but it's a term that Josephus used a lot. He talks about Samuel that way. He talks about Daniel that way, for one thing. A doer of wonderful works, that's actually more ambiguous than it looks. It can mean something like works that were startling, works that were controversial. When he talks about here those who receive the truth with pleasure, that's not a word, that pleasure, that Christians 
ever used for themselves. They intentionally avoided it because it has connotations with pleasures of the world. They never used this. And referring to Christians as a tribe, that's a way Christians didn't refer to themselves either, but it's a way Josephus refers to different groups. So in other words, the most likely thinking here is that we have a passage originally by Josephus that some pious Christian way back when inserted some of this other material into, if it be lawful to call him a man, he was the Christ, and all this bit about the resurrection. If you just pull that out, everything else there makes sense, and it's typical of Josephus in his vocabulary and his style. One final mention we want to look at comes from the rabbinic tradition, the Talmud. Now this is extremely complex, multi-layered, uh, composed over several centuries, so we can't possibly get into all of it. But the earliest strata of the Talmud was written from about the year 70 down to about the year 200. So you would expect it to have the most reliable information about Jesus. And actually that's where we find the most extensive mention of Jesus. I want to read this to you. On the eve of the Passover, Yeshu, that's Jesus, was hanged. For 40 days before the execution took place, a herald went forth and cried, He's going forth to be stoned because he's practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. Anyone who can say anything in his favor, let him come forward and plead on his behalf. But since nothing was brought forward in his favor, he was hanged on the eve of the Passover. It's hard to determine what here really goes back to the earliest tradition or what's just written here to counter Christian accusations because you notice here a lot of this seems apologetic. What we find in the Gospel accounts is that Jesus was tried illegally at night. It was unjust. And here they say, well, no, it was perfectly legal. They went out for 40 days trying to get somebody to come forward on his behalf and nobody did. But what's really noteworthy here, I think, you notice why he was to be killed. It's because he's practiced sorcery. We have an admission here of a miracle-working Jesus. Now, they attribute his power to the devil. Is this much like what we see in the Gospels? He cast out demons by the power of the prince of demons, Beelzebul? Maybe. Maybe it goes back to that. But, you know, if Jesus didn't exist... Wouldn't that be the way you would expect the rabbis to talk about him? Oh, yeah, that guy. He was never really real. No, they admit he's real and that he did miracles. We've only scratched the surface here this morning. This is only a sampling of the earliest mentions of Jesus outside of the Bible. We could look at other uh, more sparse and slightly later sources from the Greeks and Romans. We could look at early Christian sources outside of the New Testament. But my point is, these taken together are all sufficient to corroborate the details of the New Testament, broadly speaking. Jesus lived in Palestine. He lived under the reign of Tiberius. He performed great deeds. He was crucified under the governorship of Pilate. And he had followers who continued to follow him after his death. Did Jesus exist? Yes. Can you prove that apart from the New Testament? Yes, absolutely. And today's sermon's obviously been somewhat unusual. I realize this is more of a, a lecture than a sermon, and 
maybe this isn't your thing, but I hope that some of you have at least found this uh, insightful. You gained some knowledge here. As I said, I think this is important because you really might encounter this idea out in the wild that Jesus never existed. And it's not important that you remember every one of these in detail. But what is important is that you know, no, I know that's not true. There's evidence that Jesus really did exist. We need to be prepared for that sort of thing. But of course, in the end, it doesn't really matter whether or not you believe Jesus existed if you don't believe what Scripture says about Jesus. And so before we close, I want to remind you, if you don't know of who the Bible says that Jesus is, that our sins have separated us from God, but that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came down to this earth, took on human form, was perfectly obedient to God, that took the penalty of our sins on himself so that we could be made right with God. And that through his death and then his vindication and his resurrection, we have the opportunity to have our sins forgiven, to be back in that right relationship reconciled to God. And if you've never availed yourself of what Christ has done for you, I invite you this morning to do it. Put your trust in him. Turn to God in repentance Confess that Jesus was not just a man, but that he is Lord. Be buried with him in baptism. Have your sins washed away. Embark on living your life in his image. Maybe you're here this morning, you already are a Christian, and of course, if that's the case, I don't need to convince you that Jesus really lived. But maybe, maybe even though we know that on some level, we live ourselves as if He'd never lived. We forget that he was here in this world, that he really walked and talked and did the things that the Bible says he did, that he really did die, that he really was raised. He really is coming back one day to judge us. Maybe we need to make changes in our lives so we can be prepared for that day. Whatever your need may be this morning, if you are not in a right relationship with God, I would invite you to make the changes you need to make this morning. Now, while we stand and while we sing.